This was one of those conversations where I didn't even glance at the list of questions I'd prepared. Speaking with Ashara Ekundayo was such a treat. I didn't want to miss a word. I didn't want to break our concentration. Ashara is a cultural strategist. She's a committed supporter of the arts and she's a deep thinker about how we can better value design, creativity, artist communities, and ultimately the cultural assets that make a city worth living in. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Ashara is based in Oakland in California, which is fortuitous because I've just returned from a trip to neighbouring San Francisco, where gentrification and urban renewal is rapidly changing the face of the city and threatening to smother the cultural value that makes it so special. There's a lot of lessons in this discussion. I'll be coming back to this one for sure. Ashara is so eloquent and passionate in the way she describes the challenges in her community, but also in the love she has for what she's trying to protect. Anyway, let's get into it. You can check out the website at johntreadgold.com for all the show notes. And please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. I don't ask too much of you, my dear listeners. I don't run ads but a review really is the best way to help more people find the show. So if you can, please jump onto iTunes and leave a comment. All right, enough of that. Here it is, my conversation with Ashara Ekundayo. Here we go. Australia in Sydney. It's your first time to Australia. You've only been here for a few days. You're here for the Impact Summit that starts on Wednesday. Welcome to Sydney. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. What a beautiful city. I'm, you know, I've been having a really good time for the last few days and I'm excited about the summit. Now, your bio calls you a cultural strategist. I think it's a really interesting term. I think it's pretty great. And I think if all urban development projects required a cultural strategist, I think our cities would be a lot more interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about that role? I mean, it's become a more common kind of term being used by consultants in the States who are using arts, using creativity, using uh, an equity lens, an intersectional lens to support their clients and their process folks around looking at and centering the culture of a community, of a neighborhood, of an organization, uh, in order to to look at the work that needs to be done, in order to assess and perhaps pivot on what the next step might be, and and really looking at some cultural competency, you know, in terms of messaging and outreach as well. It just depends on the client. It depends on the project. It depends on really the, the courage, I think, of the client as well. Well, that's right. And there's so many layers when you talk about, you know, a development. You've got government, you've got developers who might only have financial sort of incentives. Um, You've then obviously got the community, which are often left last. So where does this, you know, you're talking about the client. Where where does the the motivation come from, mostly, that you've seen it? Well, because I I live as a cultural worker, which means I'm at the centre of my work. I'm an artist uh, and a curator, which means I pull together creative entities and ideas and exhibitions to look at society. And so, you know, it comes together when people are looking to shift their culture. You know, you hear corporations, you hear organizations say, oh, we want to look at our culture, we want to do a culture shift. Perhaps we're looking for 
uh, new employees or new partners to come on, and we want them to be culturally appropriate, but we really haven't looked at our own culture and what is important to us, what our values are and what our tenets are, and really what our ethos and our epistemology is for that organization. And so I'm a cultural strategist who comes in and helps assess that, you know, and it, sometimes it takes a while to pull back the layers, let's say, to pull back the layers of, a, of an onion or to turn a ship, which is a big, slow turn, and uh, often challenging, sometimes painful for folks. But if you are up for doing it, if you're saying that I'm ready to and willing and committed to looking at my work from an equitable lens, from a lens of pluralism, and you know, I think the catch term that gets used a lot is from DNI, from diversity and you know, inclusion, then that means that you have to investigate your house yourself. Well, I think that introspection can be painful. And it's great to hear that there is that energy for it. Is this happening on a large scale as well as sort of your smaller developments? Is it sort of, I guess it's being nurtured at that smaller scale and, and, and trying to build it to sort of that? Mm-hmm. It's definitely being nurtured at a smaller scale. You hear, you hear the conversation happening at a very large scale as well. Um, I think the tech industry is a good example of a sector that really got called out for its implicit bias and it's actually institutional racism, institutional sexism. And because there was a public outcry, because there has to be an intersectional inquiry as to who the clients are, who the consumers are, who the creators are, and how we're going to continue to like live on this planet together and engage each other and these brands which I really don't like, but that's really what it is. These brands want to be able to expand even more who their audience is and who their footprint impacts. And so therefore they have to be willing to look at who's working there, who's creating the messaging. And if you put something out that's really inappropriate or really you know, out of pocket, as we might say, you know, you're going to get called on that. So you know, who's your mouthpiece to say, okay, you know, we messed up or we didn't mess up, but here's what we're going to do now. I think it's a cross-sector, definitely inside the social entrepreneurship, you know, models that are saying we're looking at a triple bottom line. So looking at a triple bottom line requires looking at self. Yeah, well, I mean, it's great to hear that the community is having that influence, that when they do call it out and there, you know, has been action, you know, so that's a positive. And of course, you mentioned the tech industry and you're from Oakland, which has its proximity to San Francisco and the mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. So that's obviously really central to this. So how did well, that... Well, I want, I want to okay. push back a little. I'm not from Oakland. Okay. I live in Oakland. All right. Uh, I'm from another city that had a huge impact on the, on the global economy called Detroit, Michigan. That's where I'm from. And I lived there uh, until I was a teenager and then moved to Denver, Colorado, where I lived for 29 years and chose to move to Oakland 10 years ago. And uh, part of that work had to do with just, you know, shifting and, you know, life and children getting to an age where I could leave. But the other piece was really looking for an opportunity to stretch uh, what my own career looked like and what that message looked like as a curator who was also a strategist and doing consulting in various areas internationally around uh, food security, but also at this point doing more work with real estate developers. And what does that look like in design? Because the cultural piece, I don't want to separate from the artistic piece, that I'm talking specifically about centering the creative economy, centering the creatives, the people who identify as creative and as artists. 
uh, and as maker, and that that's really essential, I think, to building, structuring, and reframing what we mean by, or what we mean when we talk about building cities, building uh, green economies, sustainable spaces, being in relationship to all beings and to all things in that community, in that neighborhood, in that society, and on the planet. There's a, an artistic and spiritual aspect that is also part of this framing of cultural strategy. I can imagine there would be a demand for that in all of those cities. But what drew you to Oakland? I was falling in love with Oakland uh, over the many years that I'd been there visiting. Originally, I was doing a, a fellowship with a nonprofit organization called Green for All, which is actually the second NGO that was founded by Van Jones, who uh, is African-American brother, Yale Law degree, at a certain point of his life, you know, was very much a grassroots social justice uh, advocate. And, you know, at a certain point, he left that sector and moved on to work in the Obama administration for a while. And now he has a weekly show on CNN. And he's become quite the political pundit. But at the time, there were um, fellows from across the United States who were representing different aspects of sustainability. And at the time, I was still living in Colorado, uh, but I was working in food justice in Uganda and uh, Kenya and Chicago and Milwaukee. And so all that to say is that I chose Oakland because I continued to fall in love with this history, this legacy of social justice. It's the home of the Black Panther Party, which... um, you know, has had an, an amazing, deep impact on uh, the society uh, of the United States, and particularly, I think, on black and brown and indigenous folk in the United States in terms of taking care of each other and taking care of community in ways that have really uh, shifted our, our way of thinking about revolution and about sustaining a, a society and a community. And with that heritage and that community that that drew you there, has that sort of been sustained? Is it really strong there? Or do you just have to fight even harder to kind of maintain your communities with, you know, this rise of what we were talking about before, gentrification, which, you know, in some ways can be positive, can be negative. You know, it's a really rich debate about what that means and how it impacts our communities. But with that heritage, uh, yeah, do you find that it's quite solid or...? That's a complicated question. Uh, What I find is that uh, history and legacy is real and intact. What I also know is that there's so much healing that needs to happen in community because there's so much challenge and so much struggle as well. So it's not hard to maintain, I think, the energy and the pride that Oakland has and the Bay Area has around really, I think, what has been a unique way in which human rights, social justice movements have met on the front line at the grassroots level all the way up to, I think, a mainstream level as well. You see the culture and the ideas and the imagery and the music and the art of grassroots organizers being used to sell chips, you know, and soda. Uh, You see it being used to, um, I don't know, I would say to just to sell everything, you know. So capitalism is alive and well and it you know in its very difficult space it causes a lot of pain for folks so you know we're looking at you know different ways to unpack that different ways to look at economy and part of that for my work means that looking at the creative economy as the root 
fire the engine that fuels the rest of the economies in society. Definitely that's the situation in the Bay Area. We're having conversations, public conversations, whatever, behind closed door conversations. What we all know is that the road to gentrification is paved with beauty, that we know that artists and creatives and our work has been used as one of the facets of the machine that pushes and displaces other folks, locks particular groups of people out of the economic justice, you know, just out of the sector around making money. It's complicated, as I'm saying, to juggle, you know, our need to, you know, operate inside a capitalistic society, our need to get our work done and pay rent and mortgages and whatnot, but also not wanting to, like, sell your soul, you know, wanting to be authentic and honest to the work that you're doing and that you've committed to. Yeah, I mean, it's such an irony, isn't it, that it's... It is. Uh, it's a double-edged sword. It's phenomenal <laughs> it's, yeah. in, in this, you know, we're creating this most vibrant space, and of course that's now where everybody wants to be. Everybody now gets drawn in, um, and then they get priced out. Is there a way to have growth without pushing them out? I mean, I think that's that, surely that, that the is the quint- That's work, the quintessential right? question. That's, that's really what it is. It's like, can you have both? Wherever there's a, a community that has been beautified you know, by folks who are just creative. You know, artists are going to do what they need to do to live because that's what we must do. The more hip, the more, you know, groovy, the more sexy the neighborhood looks, it then becomes a target for development. And once the developer sees it and sets their, their eyes on it and starts to uh, buy up properties, it shifts the whole tax bracket. The people who have lived there who have made it beautiful and made it hip and made it interesting pretty much get pushed out of it because they're no longer able to afford the rent. Mm. You know, the rent goes up, the property values go up. You know, and you know, Oakland has notoriously, you know, been impacted by what we call newcomer folk who move into like the urban centers, the centers that are traditionally where black and brown folk live, and then complain about, you know, that they're drumming in the park or they're barbecuing at the lake or the choir rehearsal is going too late. It's like, well, you know, you moved into that neighborhood because those were the really cool things that make it a fabulous neighborhood. So those people aren't going to stop drumming or barbecuing or playing in the park on Sunday or having choir rehearsal at church because that's what they do there. So you chose to live there. But what I'm saying to you is that we have these clashes and these very serious and very public situations. Yeah, where newcomers believe that, oh, you know, well, I moved here and I want it to be like this. It's like, no, you moved here because this was cute. You moved here because this was beautiful. You moved here because it was ethnic. You moved here because, you know, you wanted to be around a diverse group of people. And that diverse group of people are what made this neighborhood popular. So those are just some of the dynamics that we just tell the truth about. Like I said, you pull back the layer. When a group wants to like, well, we really want to do better. We want to have more people of color who work in our organization, but we don't know how to do that. And it's like, well, it has everything to do with each person. Organizations are run by people. You know, you have to look at the organizational institutional structure, but it really comes down to individuals who have uh, the power. And are you are you somewhat in uh, the intermediary in between these clashes often? I mean, you, you work with the developers, you try and perhaps, you know, talk to your own community and, and sort of explain that, you know, we're going to need a certain amount of it. Do, do, <laughs> is that your role as a bridge? It must Sometimes be really difficult. It, 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 it is my role uh, when I'm working with real estate developers, is the intermediary, is the liaison. 
And that has more to do with, you know, who's buying what piece of land? Is it a private developer trying to buy public land? What are they going to do on that land? And what are the community benefit agreements that are going to be put together that are going to make it, I don't know, at least more easeful for the developer? Because any way you turn it in the United States, development is a pretty hated sector <laughs> right now, and at least in the urban centers. Nobody loves a developer. Well, and I think it, it definitely comes down to power, which it always does. Absolutely. And so often, so often that's financial. But I think if we go back to the early days of, you know, an area that's shifting and changing, surely it's the local community that own that land and they've made the choice to sell. And I just wonder, is this just the natural nature of capitalism that I've been offered, you know, far more than I ever thought I would for this piece of land? You can't, you know, I can't be expected to, to question who it's being sold to. Sometimes people have made a choice to sell. Many times, eminent domain has been you know, executed as well on properties, right? And so it hasn't so always... Tell us about that? A US sort of, I mean, that's um, a U.S. kind regulation. of like, oh, w- the government sees that this building right here, we want to develop it and we're going to sell the building to the developer and all of the people who live there, we're going to condemn the building. We're going to say that this building and this plot of land needs to be remediated in some kind of way. And so we're going to give everybody a small amount of money and, you know, displace them and place them somewhere else so that this building or this plot of land can then be developed. Eminent domain is, yeah, that's, it's one of the tactics that gets used by government, local governments, a lot, more than you would think so, actually, to support development. And that has a lot to do with the corruption inside, you know, the sector and, you know, who's, who's got the power, who's got the money. So I just, I don't want to say, oh, every, all of the time that people have chosen to, to sell. No, that's not true. People get pushed out of their homes and they're off their property and off of their land because the taxes have gone up. So you've lived in a house for 50 years and because of the development happening around it, again, the property value goes up, the tax bracket goes up. And so you have, some, say, an elder who's on a limited income. They've been paying the same amount of taxes for 40 years all of the property and the neighborhood gets developed around them and now the amount goes up. They can't afford it because they have the same amount of money they get from their social security check. You see what I'm saying? And so then they can't pay the taxes on a house that they've had for generations and they get pushed out of that house, a house that they have, that they own. So they didn't choose to sell, they just got displaced from their home. And so, you know, in the definition of gentrification, there is someone who is being removed, being pushed out. It's not gentrification by definition when uh, an entity just comes in and says, here's this empty plot of land, and I'm going to build something here, and it's going to be really amazing. What does happen is the impact of that. Like, no one got displaced or removed, but the impact is that the more beautiful a neighborhood it is, the more appealing it is, the more expensive it is to live in. And so we had... Lots of conversations. Uh, when I founded Impact Hub Oakland uh, seven years ago, there were seven founders. And we had to contend with Oakland community saying, hey, we're not sure what you're doing. We're here to support this idea of co-working. At the time, there weren't a lot of co-working spaces, but there are now. But you're the gentrifiers, and we want to talk about what that means for a multiracial, multicultural group of Uh, entrepreneurs to come in and to retrofit a building that had been sitting empty for many, many years. 
And so we said, well, by definition, we're not the gentrifiers, but we understand our impact. And so we're talking about, you know, like I said, this is about being authentic and honest and courageous. The impact of coming in and making a very beautiful company in a very beautiful space and inviting what, you know, we think is a very broad amount of community to come and work. And our our invitation was to bring what makes you come alive. Come alive with us was the hashtag. But what I'm saying to you is that we had to contend with yeah, the impact, the more successful we are, the more beautiful the space is, the more dynamic the outreach is and the engagement is. Yes, that's going to impact everybody around us. And it did increase the property value and it did make it very difficult as our business opened and all of the businesses around us opened, impacted the folks, particularly the artists and the gallerists who had been paying a small amount of rent who then got pushed out of their spaces. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the obvious paradox is that yeah. then the market's not really working because you're pushing out what makes it beautiful, and surely that's eventually going to pull back and it's not going to be as, as beautiful or inviting a place. Well, it might be as beautiful, but it's not being maintained by the people who created that uh, initial idea, you know. Uh, I mean, is it a matter of, you know, measurement that these cultural factors art, design, that this stuff might not fit into the normal financial metrics of how you value a place? Do you come across that? Are there some Mm -hmm. other ways that you're finding to help, you know, talk to developers and say, well, actually, we can, you know, that's not actually worth X, it's worth far more if we factor in the cultural artistic elements of it? Mm -hmm. That is what is happening. You know, what we have to look at is how we value art and creativity. And the United States has a history of not valuing artists not paying uh, creative people well. And really kind of like seeing, well, they're artists and they're gonna create regardless of if we pay them. And so it is often the artist who's asked to donate their services. The DJ is asked or someone will try to talk down the visual artist or the dance company or, I mean, just think about all of the different ways in which art and culture touch every aspect of our life, every aspect. And it's often the person who, that's what they do, period, for a living who is asked to donate their services and for exposure. And exposure does not buy loaves of bread at all. <laughs> so there is a, a conversation that is you know, bubbling up more now in saying you know, it is important that we have artists sitting at the table, at every table. And that has everything to do with that all of the design and all of the ways in which our infrastructure works for us were touched by an artist. This mic that we're sitting in front of was designed, this table, there's a reason why it's curved or why it has this particular sheen to it, this glass that's sitting in front of us, all these are designers. There's no way to get away from the artist, okay? So, but there has only recently started to be a question, and also inside the the philanthropic sector, what is your creative footprint? It doesn't matter what it is that's being funded or being invested in or being built, What is your creative footprint? And Oakland and San Francisco and many cities in the United States also have a percentage of the total build-out budget that has to be allocated for public art. So you actually have to have an art project in every new building that is being designed in Oakland. So artists are sitting at the table in different kinds of ways now. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, I think Sydney is going through a similar process of of property prices pushing higher, artists having to get pushed further and further out. Um, And I think these are some really valuable lessons that I hope some, you know, property developers who are more and more 
becoming focused on measuring their impact mm -hmm. and trying to factor that in. So mm -hmm. I really hope they sort of hear these stories and think it through and, you know, they can talk to you to try and learn some lessons. I mean, this is why it's important to invest in artists, to invest in culture. It's like when you invest in the creative aspects of your community, then everyone is supported in that way. It's like if an artist is taken care of, if they can pay their rent, if they can raise their children, if they can pay their tuition, and then they're able to spend their energy on being creative in ways and rethinking and telling new stories and creating new narratives for us to like be able to live in more harmony. And when artists are struggling and trying to figure out every day, you know, am I going to pay my hospital bill or am I going to buy food? You know, if I even have health insurance, which is a huge, huge issue in the United States, you know, we don't have socialized medicine or education at all. And so the poverty levels are pretty high in the United States. And often artists are living at the margins, you know, of the economy. And as I said, all other economies are fueled by the creative economy. So when the creatives are taken care of, then society is able to move, I think, with more ease to be able to really kind of tackle, you know, the issues of how are we going to, like, understand each other and listen to each other and, and, and deal with some of our, our past so that we can, like, move forward, you know, in a much more equitable way, in a much more kind way. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of, you know, that throwaway line, buy good art, and, you know, people are... are talk to architects and they just talk about how no one will spend more for good design they just want the most bricks they can you have an art gallery yourself in Oakland I'd just love to get your perspective on you know how can we shift that perspective to have people to value it more to be willing when they build a house to invest in the good design to not just go for the lowest price but go for the best design for you know mm -hmm. for sustainability issues we find that in fashion all of these issues of mm -hmm. one piece rather than fast fashion how do you see that playing out? You know, I had the gift of having a mother who taught me a lesson when I was very young that there are only two things that appreciate in society, land and art. Everything else depreciates. Every other shiny bobble, new car that you drive around the block, they won't give you the same amount of money for it if you literally drive it around the block and come back. And so this investment in land and in art has to... I think really bring to the forefront the importance of understanding ourselves as creative beings and allowing for us to value the production of artists and the things that they make in a way that sees it as an investment in society. It's not this, oh, thing on the side. It's this add-on piece. It's like, no, this is actually the investment that is part of the, the whole machine that makes our society whole and makes us capable and, dare I say, righteous, you know, in our work that we're doing. And so there is a mindset that has to happen, that has to shift around the cultural production, the creative production of artists is an actual investment. It's part of our overall understanding of how to be innovative in society, working in economies that are equitable and diverse. Thank you. I think that's a really important idea of that mindset shift and really understanding that this is where we come from and this is kind of a tangible embodiment of our culture. Mm -hmm. And this term, I think, and I think in Australia, it's a real issue of what is our culture. We've, English have only been here for, for not very long at all and so we have this very, but then we have this very ancient uh, indigenous culture. So I think Australia grapples with that in a unique way. But in terms of 
simply valuing that and shifting that mindset to be willing to invest in that, I think it's pretty powerful. And mm. now I've been really loving this conversation. I think you've got a lot of great fodder when you speak at the Impact Summit later this week. Yes. Um, we were talking about, I'm going to help you brainstorm some of your <laughs> Okay, <speech>. good. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what can, uh, what can people look forward to this week? It looks like such a, a fascinating, you know, multifaceted kind of conversation. I'm really interested in the gender lens. I'm really interested in looking uh, and listening to folks who are talking about how that, uh, I don't know, niche of economic development shows up in Southeast Asia. Part of that has to do with um, my work as a curator for the past, well, for many, many years, but for the past two years, I've been stewarding a gallery space that exclusively exhibits the work of black women, women of the African diaspora. And so it's been, it's been a particular kind of endeavor, you know, and I've learned a lot, I think, on a, on a national level, looking at how women's art and how women's voices and how we tell stories in a particular way feeds and supports society. And I think we all know that, that women are the keepers of culture. I think that's across race, across geography, across tribe, across country, borders, if we believe in borders. But what I would say in terms of what we're expecting this week, I think I'm going to give some examples of artists as first responder. And that's been some anthropological study I've been doing over the past 20 years, some formally, some informally, with exploring who shows up first, and not only in catastrophe, but also in celebration. And so part of what I'll be talking about at the, at the Investment Impact you know, Summit will be some examples of creative people working in Puerto Rico, working in Oakland, working in New York, working in Amsterdam, who are across race, across gender, and across, I think, I want to say intergenerational you know, folks who are young, folks who are elder and in between. And what that work looks like and the importance and the impact of that work in terms of our ability to create solutions from our divine artistic self and how that shows up across economic and cultural and political and civic sectors. So I'm going to just, you know, keep thinking about, you know, who to highlight on that. And that gives, I think, an example or opportunities for folks who are looking to make deep, conscientious investments with their, their dollars right now, that it doesn't always have to look like the usual suspect startup, that it could also look like an artist. It could look like someone who is doing um, work to rebuild homes in Puerto Rico and is documenting that and create, you know, creating opportunities for children to learn things and to learn photography, to learn filmmaking. I'm, I'm just thinking about the different ways that, that we have been able to engage the economy. Yeah. And look, that'll be really, really useful, I think, that, that breadth. And I think that's what's beautiful about the Impact Investing Summit is this big tent bringing everybody mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. um, and sharing stories from so far away that then percolate even further out to different countries and even back, you know, back in time. So mm -hmm. some really important lessons. So I, I think one of the things that makes it great as well uh, is that because everyone comes to the table kind of with their guard down. You know what I mean? It's a bit of the guard is down, not all of the guard is down, but it's like people are meeting up because I have a project, I have an idea that I want to share with you, and there are people who are there saying, I'm ready to hear this idea, and I'm ready to support this idea. Let's figure out how we can collaborate and partner on that. And so it's not a cold call 
You know, you've shown up at a summit on purpose, intentional. And this is about intentional, intentional ideation, intentional support, intentional financial partnership. Intentionality is, is what I think makes a summit like this special. Definitely. Yeah. And, and it's certainly not passive. You know, no, you, you want, no, no. It's not to sit down and I'm just going to absorb people imparting wisdom. It's no, you've got to get involved. You've got to share your ideas. We want some debate. Yeah. yeah. So. It's like, come talk to me. Come talk to me. Let's hash it out. I don't know all of the, the answers yet, but I'm definitely willing to like sit here at the table with you. And I think, you know, it's one of the kind of convenings where people will talk to people they wouldn't normally talk to. And I think that's one of those great things around having your guard down a little bit is that, well, you don't look anything like me. You don't sound anything like me. I maybe have never met anyone like you, but let's have a talk about it because we're here at this summit together intentionally. So palms open to give and receive. And that, that's what I'm looking forward to. Oh, great. I really hope that that's how people turn up. And, and that's, yeah, that's definitely the, the intention. To finish it up, I'd love a book recommendation, a book a YouTube video, maybe a film, a documentary? You know, there's a book that came out a year ago that I continue to return to. I'm using it a lot in terms of strategy design called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, who is a facilitator, uh, a somatic practitioner, uh, an artist, a poet from uh, Detroit, Michigan, my hometown. It allows for us to look at uh, the natural world Uh, It allows us to look at culture. It allows us to look at race. It allows us to look at gender. And, you know, the emergent aspect of of designing for sustainability. That's the book that continues to, like, stay with me right now. I mean, there have been books over the years, but that one over the last couple of years, three years ago, that it came out, Emergent Strategy. So look up Adrienne Marie Brown. And it's one of those books that can kind of be used sort of like a Bible. You know, you don't have to start at the beginning. You can, like, open up a chapter and look at uh, these ideas around fractals and the use of taking care of the small because the small is, you know, just it's a particle, but it's, you know, exemplary of the whole. And so when you're, you know, if you can take care of the small, small is all. And, I mean, this is, is an example of... of an idea that comes from nature when we look at a honeycomb, you know, that the bees create these fractals and you see the comb and how they connect on all sides and the fact that all the sides need to be touching in order for the comb to be intact and for them to be able to live and sustain themselves intact. Taking care of the small. Yeah, small is all. Small is all. It's a beautiful way to end it and I think that 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 focus on design and that focus on organic design and Mm -hmm. learning from that in that it's self-perpetuating, but then it will grow to a certain size and then it can, can you know, go back to the earth and that sustainability and circular economy and all of these factors that, that, are, that are so interesting. But thank you. Really appreciate you sharing so much today. I'll let you go and enjoy Sydney. <laughs> Thanks, John. Cheers. Cheers.